Lord God, we want to uh, stand where we were singing or, well, those of us at home were singing, those of us in the room were humming, clapping, swaying, and we were saying that we are children of the promise. We are not children of performance. We are not children of better than. We are not children of maybe I can um, improve myself next week. We are not children of perfection or children of deserving it or children of already knowing it, so we don't really need to pay that close attention today. We are children of the promise. Every good thing that has ever come into our lives is because you are a gracious creator and father and redeemer. And the good thing that we need to come into our lives right now is the presence of the Holy Spirit who inspired the scriptures, who gave us this great gift so that we could know your loving loyalty to us through Jesus Christ. And we pray that uh, everything that would distract us or keep us from listening to the Spirit today would just be gone. And we pray that we would sit as needy children, ready to hear once again all of the promises that are ours through Christ by your great mercy. Give us that heart and that confidence as we hear from your word, we pray in the name of Christ. Amen. So, today we're starting a, a short sermon series on a short book of the Bible. It's the book called Ruth. It's four chapters long. We'll spend five weeks on it. Why right now? Why after Easter? Well, that'll become a little more clear as we go through the message today, you'll see the graphic behind me features a detail from a painting that was done in 1896 by a French painter named James Tissot. And um, this is a, a picture of Ruth. She's the main character in this particular painting. If you don't know or, or don't remember this book of the Bible, it, it tells the story of what happened when Ruth and her mother-in-law, Naomi, returned to Bethlehem. Well, Naomi returned. It was the first time for Ruth to come. Why? What's the backstory? Well, there was a famine in the land of Israel, and a family from Bethlehem, the city of David, the city where Jesus was born, um, that family went to another country, Moab, historic enemy of Israel to find refuge from this famine. And in that country, uh, Naomi's husband, Elimelech, died. And uh, her two sons married women from Moab. Uh, one of these women was named Orpah. The other was named Ruth. And uh, eventually, their husband's died as well. So now Naomi has lost her husband, and 10 years later, her two sons, and she is without family, without hope, without help in a foreign land, and she determines that it will be better for her to return back to Bethlehem, her home. And uh, she says to her young daughters-in-law, who now have no husbands and, and no prospects in the land of Israel, 
They have no ties to that place. They have no ties to those people. They will fare better if they stay in their home country of Moab, where they aren't going to be looked down upon as enemies in a foreign land. And so no one would expect that they would volunteer to return to Bethlehem with Naomi. But Ruth does. And she returns at harvest time. She returns when barley is being harvested. And according to the scriptures, a man who owned a field of barley, his name is Boaz, left the corners of the barley field unharvested so that the poor of Bethlehem could come and glean what remained. And this is a picture of that moment when Ruth is in the field gleaning the remaining barley because she and her mother-in-law, Naomi, are on the brink of starvation. And something has caught her attention, and she's turning to look at it. Well, we could imagine, you know, it's something meaningless, but if you're a painter bothering to paint this scene, you probably want to imply that it's something pretty significant, like maybe the first moment that she sees the man who owns this field. His name is Boaz. Eventually, Ruth and Boaz marry, and they have a son, and the son's name is Obed, and he has a son named Jesse, and he has a son named David, King David. So this is a story of how a redeemer shows up at the moment when the questions of survival are being asked. How will these women survive? How will their family line continue? How will the nation of Israel itself survive? Because all of this is taking place, as we're going to hear in just a moment, in the days when the judges ruled. It was a day when there was no king in the land and everyone did what was right in their own eyes, a time of absolute chaos, spiritually, politically, militarily, economically, in every way, utter chaos. How will people on the brink survive? And the answer is a redeemer enters the story. Boaz is a kinsman redeemer. King David is a redeemer king. The whole story is about how God is redeeming his people, how he shows up in the story. And I'd like to say that this went back all the way to the time of Jesus. I'm not sure of that, but at least as far back as the 6th century, Jewish communities have been reading the book of Ruth at an annual festival called Shavuot or the Feast of Weeks. It's It's a feast held at harvest time, when you bring in the first bit of the harvest, and it's a sign of what remains to come. God, the Redeemer, shows up in the life of Ruth and Naomi, and that's a sign of something that is greater yet to come through the reign of King David, and that's a sign of grace that is greater, that is yet to come through the reign of King David. Jesus. That's the story that God enters into. That's the story we're going to celebrate over the next five weeks. So let's get off to a great start this morning with a reading from the beginning and the ending of Ruth. Jordan? Thank you. Thank you. Today's scripture reading is selections from the book of Ruth, chapters 1 and 4. First from chapter 1. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. 
And a man in Bethlehem in Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife Naomi, and the name of his two sons Machlon and Kilion. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem in Judah. They went into the country of Moab and remained there. But Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died, and she was left with her two sons. These took Moabite wives. The name of one was Orpah, and the name of the other, Ruth. They lived there about 10 years, and both Machlon and Kilion died, so that the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. Now from chapter four. Now these are the generations of Peretz. Peretz fathered Hezron. Hezron fathered Ram. Ram fathered Aminadab. Aminadab fathered Nachshon. Nachshon fathered Salmon. Salmon fathered Boaz. Boaz fathered Obed. Obed fathered Jesse. And Jesse fathered David. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. It would be hard to do this after what we just heard Jordan read. If you read this book, you automatically know that this is not a cutesy little story. Do you know that word cutesy? Right? So, so in English, it's, it's, you're taking the word cute and, and you're, you're making the kitten's eyes bigger, right? When you say cutesy. You are making the princess's eyelashes flutter just a little bit more when you say cutesy. Um, one of the dangers with the book of Ruth is that it's often read as this cutesy little story. Um, look at these images. This is a family setting off on an adventure, right? This is from a children's Bible. I mean, look at these mischievous little boys, Milan and, and Kilion. Those little rascals, you know, those grins on their faces saying, oh gosh darn it, it's a famine and we're refugees now, right? The family in the background, bye guys, have a great time. You know, cute little donkeys, we're off on a big family adventure because we don't want to starve to death because it's a famine. And on the road, we might get attacked because there's no king in the land and it's utter chaos. But we'd rather risk going to enemy territory in Moab and maybe getting enough to eat than to die of starvation here, even if we may be attacked along the way. This picture gives you nothing of that real world context, right? The book of Ruth is often read as this maybe cutesy adventure story or... Um, Here's one of my least favorite images from a children's Bible associated with Ruth. This is the Disney treatment, isn't it? Right? It, the, the animation here looks like what you'd see in a, in a Disney movie. Oh, Ruth is a story about romance. There's the happy couple in the background, right? There's Boaz and there's Ruth and aren't they lovely and cutesy? And he has those tiny little man eyes that you get when you're a Disney guy. And she has those big kind of round doe eyes that you get when you're a Disney girl. 
Oh, and it's a story about a baby. What could be more cute than a story about a baby? There's Naomi holding the new baby Obed, and man, what a cool story about adventure and romance and a baby and sign me up and Tinkerbell's gonna fly across the screen at any moment. And if you read this part, this is really a sermon about life, okay? How to read life, how to read the Bible and how to read life because they both work the same way. If you're reading the Bible right, you will learn how to read life right. If you read the Bible and if you read your life as though it's meant to be this cutesy little story, you will read it in awful ways. So um, once upon a time, a, a local church invited me to help prepare a group of women for their semester-long study of the book of Ruth. And they sent me a copy of their study guide and they said, would you mind reading through it and maybe give us an orientation? I was reading through it and I came to this detail, chapter three, um, Naomi is giving advice to Ruth, her daughter-in-law, about, about how to build a relationship with Boaz so that their family line can be restored and, and they won't be wiped out and they won't go extinct and they won't starve to death. And, um, and she says in chapter three, verse three to Ruth, wash therefore and anoint yourself and put on your cloak. And this Bible study guide did something really awful. It said, Christian women, you need to make yourselves attractive. You need to do your hair. You need to get your makeup right. You need to have a nice wardrobe. And so what I said to those women was, don't read this book. Don't use this guide. Because it's written for a world that doesn't exist. It's written for a cutesy little world in which Christian women have cutesy little problems like, well, you know, the worst thing that happened this year was I had a bad hair day. Or, you know, my, my biggest struggle in life is, is getting up those extra 12 minutes it takes to get the makeup on. Do you know any women like that? That that's the biggest problem they're ever going to face? No, you don't. The book of Ruth was not written for women like that. The book of the Bible wasn't written for people like that. Christ did not come to redeem people who have cutesy little problems for which tiny little human strength is an appropriate solution. Oh, if it's all about just making my hair look right, I can go to the barber and get a cut every three weeks. If it's just about getting up 12 minutes earlier every day, I can do that for a couple days. <laughs> and then my strength runs out. So one of the worst ways to read the scriptures is as though, as though it's a, it's a story about tiny little problems that human strength can solve. And if you read scripture that way, you will start reading your own life that way. And you will reach one of two conclusions. Either I don't really have problems because if I'm gonna be a good little Christian, then my problems have to be small enough that I can fix them. So I have to pretend away all the real ones. Or I can say the problems are real, but I just gotta suck it up and get stronger. That is not the gospel story. 
That is not the story of Ruth. It's not the story of Scripture. It's not the story of life for those who are in Christ. So what's a better way to read the story? Whether it's the story of Scripture or the story of life in this world, well, let's start here. Let's read the story. Let's start with knowing the context. The context of the story of Scripture and of life takes place in a world of problems that are greater than human strength can solve, right? Ruth chapter 1, verse 1, there was a famine in the land. Human strength can't make plants grow when there is no rain. Human wisdom can't solve that problem. Man of Bethlehem and Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab, sojourn. He went to be a refugee. He went to live on the margins as somebody who doesn't belong. He went as someone who has no land, no job, no prospects. He depends on the kindness and courtesy of others towards strangers. He lives on the margins. He went to the country of Moab. Well, what do we know about the country of Moab? If we've been reading the Bible all along and reading this story, we know a couple of things about Moabites. First, we know that historically they're enemies of Israel. Their king hired a prophet to call down curses on Israel when Israel had left Egypt and was trying to make their way to the promised land. They paid money to get somebody to call the gods to curse the Israelites, you don't forget stuff like that. And the Moabites worshiped a God named Molech. If you know that name at all, it's because in the scripture it's associated with child sacrifice. A God who demands that you kill your children occasionally in order to satisfy his lust for blood. They also worshiped Baal and, and Asherah a god and goddess who were believed to pair together and that caused the, the rain to fall on the earth and fertility and life to spring forth. And so their rites involved uh, sexual activity as a way of worship. The world is broken. These are not the kinds of things that human strength and wisdom can solve. And it just keeps getting worse. Elimelech dies. Okay, so first of all, I'm starving to death, even though I live in a town named the House of Bread, Bethlehem. Second of all, my name means my God is king, and everything keeps going wrong in my life. Where is my king? Elimelech dies. Naomi is now not only a refugee, but a widow. Her two sons die. And these women are all alone. This is a story about absolute desperation, and it takes place in the days when the judges were judging, in the days when the judges ruled the land. Well, what were those days like? Well, if you're holding a Bible and you're looking at Ruth chapter 1, verse 1, then right across the page is the very end of the book of Judges. And this is what it says at the very end. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. It's this time of utter chaos. 
and a romantic, cutesy little story is going to fix that? No. A cutesy adventure story with cute donkeys and mischievous little boys going on a... No. Fixing your hair upright? No. Nothing about the world in which we live can be solved by human strength and wisdom alone. The context of the story of the scriptures, the context of the story of your life is one of absolute desperation. Going back a century from when James Tussaud painted, this is a painting by William Blake, an English poet and artist. And this was not nearly as cheerful, right? The color palette is dark. The sky is gray. The green of the grass is not beautiful springtime green. And if you look at this picture closely, you see this look of utter emptiness on the face of Naomi. She's the figure standing upright. Notice her hands stretched out like this. What do those empty hands symbolize? I have nothing. I have nothing here. I have nothing to offer you, my daughters-in-law. I have nothing. And Orpah is choosing to stay in Moab, but she's not skipping off confidently. You know, my life's going to be great. She is in anguish. She's a widow. And Ruth is declaring, I will stay with you. Your God will be my God. I will go with you wherever you go. We'll get to hear that part of the story next week. It's, it's just beautiful. But look at her posture. It's just one of grief and sorrow. There is nothing cutesy about this world or your life or the book of Ruth or the story of the scriptures. It is a story where there are things so wrong that human strength can't fix them and human wisdom can't fix them. Moralistic approaches to solving the problems of this world. We will do it because we're strong enough to perform well. Humanistic, atheistic, secular approaches. We are wise and we can pick the right values even though there's no foundation for saying that they're the right ones because there's no God out there. But by our wisdom, we will get it right. Those stories won't work in this world. To read the Bible right and to read life right, we've got to start by seeing that the context includes God-sized problems. We need God the Redeemer to enter the story. And he does. And that's the plot of the whole Bible. Is God the Redeemer entering the story? God showing up. From the first moment Adam and Eve turn away from him, what does he do? He comes to find them. He comes into the story. We need to know the plot of the story. And to do that, we have to read the big picture, the whole picture. If you take that one little detail about Naomi saying, hey, anoint yourself and put on your cloak, and you try to build your life on that, the only thing you got to go with is dog yourself up. Hey, men, don't grow your hair long and shave your beard. Look, you know, look well-groomed. Hey, women, buy nicer clothes. 
If, if, you, if you take that one little detail out of its context, you are standing on thin ice already. So we got to read the whole story. We read the big picture. And we know the way Judges ends. There is no king in Israel. People who were created to live for God first and neighbor second are instead living to do what pleases them. Everyone did what was right in their own eyes. And that brings us to Ruth chapter 1. The stakes are high. The judges are ruling. There's a famine in the land. And these widows are on the brink of extinction. And we keep reading. And we get to the very end of the book and we find this genealogy. And Jordan did a great job, by the way, of pronouncing all these names. Way to go. These names sound kind of funny to us. And the notion of ending a cutesy little book, it's not a cutesy little book, with a genealogy sounds kind of weird. But the last word in this book is, there is now a king in Israel. His name is David. We started in this moment of chaos, near extinction, famine, death, the judges ruling in the land. And we end with this notice that by now, King David has been born and he is ruling and reigning. Why is that good news? Well, it carries us to a later part of the story. 2 Samuel chapter 7, where God promises David, I will establish your house forever. Your kingdom shall never come to an end. David, through your line, I will raise up a king who will reign forever. And that takes us to Matthew chapter 1, verse 1, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. And we find another genealogy. As we read through that genealogy, we read about Salmon, the father of Boaz, through a woman named Rahab, and Boaz, the father of Obed, by a woman named Ruth. And we see that the whole is one big story of God, the Redeemer, coming into our world. Why does that matter? We can never make sense of the hardest parts of the story apart from the best parts of the story. If the book of Ruth was five verses long, we would have a hard time making sense of it because it's all the hardest parts. Famine, chaos, death, widows, starvation. We have to keep reading. And we read the whole story and we see that the, that the hardest parts aren't the only parts of the story. That if we keep reading Ruth, we get past, past all the details to this ending where God has shown up and a people who had no king so everybody could live as they please now have a redeemer king because God shows up in the story. For Naomi, the hardest parts of the story lasted at least 10 years, maybe 20. It's hard to make sense of your life if for 10 or 20 years 
everything just looks bleak. And if that's all there is to the story, how do you make sense of that? Even for Ruth, right? We, we know that, well, now we know the ending of the story, right? <laughs> now we know David is born. We know that Ruth is the great-grandmother of David, the king. We know that God was using this Moabite woman to raise up a king so there wouldn't be chaos anymore. We know the end of the story. We know where it's going. So when we read chapter 2 and we read, Naomi had a relative, a worthy man of the clan of Elimelech. His name was Boaz. We're like, man, we know where this story's going. I see it already. You know, Cinderella leaves the ball, the slipper falls off. I know where this story's going. Because the prince found the slipper. Everybody knows how that story's going to end. We still like watching the rest of the movie, right? You still like reading the rest of the story. It's still kind of fun to see all the parts weave together. But things don't immediately get better for Cinderella, do they? She goes right back to cleaning pumpkin guts off herself to being the mistreated stepdaughter in a home where her father used to live. Same thing for Ruth. Ruth meets Boaz, but, but there's a long process that, that they have to go through before Naomi and Ruth can breathe a sigh of relief and say, we're not going to starve to death. We're not going to live the rest of our lives dependent on the charity of others gleaning the corners of the field because the field that belonged to Elimelech, we, we now lay claim to it. We're going to make it. But that didn't happen in an instant for Ruth. She had to live through this long process, maybe months, and not 10 or 20 years like Naomi. Her story is different. What about for Israel? The days of the judges lasted 300 years, y'all. 300 years of chaos, spiritual chaos, political chaos, military, economic chaos, 300 years. You think at some point in the 300-year span, somebody said, where's God? Where's the king when we need him? Even the way the story ends, Obed is born. It's another 60 years at least before David becomes the king. So you get to the end of the story and you're like, yay, celebrate. But if you're actually living the story, it's 60 more years of chaos before the moment we've been waiting for. To make sense of the hardest parts of the story, we've got to know the whole plot. You've got to see that God is constantly moving the story of Scripture, the story of this world, the story of our lives in Christ, the story of Christ's life, the story of your life. He's constantly moving that story despite every setback and every sorrow and every failure on your part and every frustration. He's constantly moving the story toward the goal of redemption. That's the message of Jesus after his resurrection. He shows up to his heartbroken disciples. They're saying, we thought that he was going to be the Messiah, but now he's been crucified. And now the resurrected Jesus says, well, let me tell you from Scripture that the Messiah first had to suffer and then enter his glory. 
You can't make sense of the suffering until you know the whole plot that God is moving it forward to resurrection joy and resurrection power and resurrection glory. That is the key to reading the story of Scripture, is the key to reading the story of life in this fallen world. When you are living the hardest parts of your story, I'm going to say it again because you might not be paying attention. When you are living the hardest parts of your story, they are not the whole story. They are real and they are hard. And 20 years of long, hard, agonizing life in Moab is difficult, but it's not the whole story. And the hours between Friday and Sunday in Jerusalem after the crucifixion of Jesus are long, hard hours of bitter grief and near despair, but they're not the whole story. God is moving the story toward resurrection, toward this surprising redemption that comes in a way that nobody would expect. I don't know how long it will take for my days in Moab to end. I don't know how God is going to move me from where I am to where he is taking me. I don't know those things, but I know how the story ends. The last word in the book of Ruth is David. God showed up and he brought a redeemer king. The last word in the story of the Bible is Jesus. That is the last word of your story if you're trusting Christ. If you're not trusting Christ today, I don't know what the last word of your story is. And you may not know either. It may be, maybe. I've tried hard, I've done enough, maybe. I've followed human wisdom as far as I could. I think it was the right path, maybe. The last word of the story, if you trust Christ, is the Redeemer King. God has already moved Jesus through that whole story through suffering and to resurrection life and joy. And because I am joined to Jesus by faith, he is moving me through that story. And if I don't have that to hang on to, I can't make it. This is becoming one of my favorite images from the book of Ruth. It's a painting called Whither Thou Goest. It's based on the... Uh, King James translation of the book of Ruth, where um, Ruth says to her mother-in-law in more modern English, where you go, I will go. Your God will be my God. Your people will be my people. Where you go, I will go. It's based on this concept of loving loyalty expressed through a Hebrew word called chesed. Chesed, loving kindness, mercy, covenant faithfulness. It's hard to translate it. I'm going to go with loving loyalty. The way God works redemption in this world is through loving loyalty. And you see Ruth showing that 
loving loyalty toward a God she didn't grow up with, loving loyalty toward a God that all her neighbors would say isn't real, loving loyalty toward the God of Israel. And because of that, loving loyalty to her fellow Israelite. She no longer sees herself as rooted in the the theology of Moab. My fellow worshiper of the one true God, Naomi, my mother-in-law, your God is my God. We are of the same tribe and family. Where you go, I will go. It's loving loyalty. It's how God works redemption in this world. It is the heart of the hero. If you want to know how to read a story, you find the hero and what makes the hero's heart tick. What makes the hero's heart beat most passionately? Well, who's the hero? Well, if Naomi is the hero, she's good at giving advice on how to make yourself look nicer so you can win the man. That's a cutesy little story. If the biggest problem in your life is you don't look nice enough to get your prom date, that's not your biggest problem. That's nobody's biggest problem. Even the teenager whose heart is breaking because she didn't get the prom date she wanted, it's breaking because she's lonely. It's not breaking because she didn't have a nice enough dress. It's not bracing, breaking because her mascara ran. It's breaking because she wants to be affirmed and not rejected. That's the world we live in. We don't play games with cutesy little problems. The heart of the hero, the hero of the story is not Naomi. It's not, it's not Ruth and it's not Boaz. We start to ask the question, well, well, who is it? It's this redeemer God. Four little chapters, the redeemed vocabulary shows up 22 times in this one little book. Duh, hey, really important <laughs> message here, redemption. God's heart beats for redemption through chesed, loving loyalty. God's saying, I will do whatever it takes for as long as it takes to keep all of my promises of life and love. That's loving loyalty. I will do whatever it takes for as long as it takes to keep all my promises of life and love for you. It will get you through the famine. It will get you through the aftermath of crucifixion. It will get you through the week of tears after the prom. It will get you through the hardest parts of your story because the heart of the hero is that kind of loving loyalty to his people. What was it that made Ruth able to show loving loyalty to God? What was it that made her able to show this kind of loving loyalty to Naomi? What was it that enabled Boaz to show loving loyalty to these distant cousins of his who had nothing to offer him except more mouths to feed and therefore less to keep for himself? What was it? When the heart of the hero drives the plot of the whole story, it impacts every character in the story. When people in Scripture show loving loyalty, it's because the heart of God beats with that kind of sacrificial love that says, I will do whatever it takes for as long as it takes. 
Believers in Jesus show loving loyalty to people in need. Not because you're strong enough, not because you're wise enough, but because you know the hero of the story, and that's how his heart beats. The fact that we aren't the hero doesn't mean we don't have a job to do. We're still characters in the story. We still have a script to follow, right? So we don't say, God's the hero, therefore I can ignore my neighbor in need. No. God's heart beats this way, therefore it impacts every character in the story. Therefore, I want my story to start looking more like his. And he's a God who shows up to help people who are having the worst moments of their story know that they're part of something bigger that leads eventually to life and to love through the Redeemer. Maybe a small-scale redeemer like Boaz showing up. Maybe a larger-scale redeemer like David stepping into this period of chaos. Or maybe the greatest redeemer of all, Jesus. God didn't just write our story and stand back to watch it. He came into our story. In the life and the death and resurrection of Christ, we have seen the heart of the hero. Nobody expected Israel's great king, David, to have a great-grandmother who was a Moabite woman. After all, Moabites were suspect religiously. They were the enemies of God and his people. So nobody would have expected a Moabite woman to say to an Israelite woman, I will share your pain. I will do whatever it takes to bring you from this story of death and loneliness to a story of life and love. Where you go, I will go. Your God will be my God. Your people will be my people. Nobody would have expected that. And so from the days that this book was written, and since at least the 6th century, when many Jewish communities have read this book at the Feast of Shavuot, you and I would call it Pentecost. Just 50 days after Passover, people all over the world reading this book and being prepared to hear about Jesus. Nobody would have expected Israel's greatest king to die on a cross. I mean, he was religiously suspect. He was an enemy of the leaders. Nobody would have seen this coming. Nobody would have expected the Son of God to say, I will share your pain so that I can bring you from this valley of death and loneliness and share with you endless life and love. The worst parts of the story are not the whole story. Jesus' story didn't end with crucifixion. Your story, if you are a believer in Jesus, won't end with a maybe. It ends with life and love. We don't know how long it will take to get us from here to there. We don't know how he will get us from here to there, but we do know 
our story will end the way his story will end. Perfect life, perfect love forever. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, thank you for not playing games with us. Um, Obed was not a cutesy little baby in a world that was just missing a few coos and giggles. And you were not a cutesy little baby born so that we could have Christmas pageants with dressed up children and donkeys. You came into a world that we had broken so badly and that all of our attempts to solve would really just, in the end, boil down to each one doing what he or she pleases. And we thank you that you came into this world to share our pain at the cross, to stand before God's judgment and endure what we could never have endured and to give us gifts that we could never have earned, deserved, or even imagined. Lord Jesus, strengthen us so that loving loyalty, like what we see in you, becomes, becomes our instinct when we meet people in need. We pray this for your glory and by the power of your Spirit. Amen.